You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11. And Isaiah is really helping us to put words and to put, and to put context around what you and I have just experienced. That glorious experience of worship that connects earth to heaven. And Isaiah 11 really asks us to get some background. So I had to tell you, this is the part of the message um, where I would, if I were sitting where you are, probably zone out pretty quickly because this is the part where the preacher talks about the background and the history and stuff and um, that's beneath this prophetic word in Isaiah. And I want to love that stuff. I know it's important. I'm married to someone who thinks it's really important, but for some reason I can't seem to absorb it when I hear the facts. So when I'm sitting where you are, a lot of times I'll just glaze over at this part. <laughs> we start talking about the history and I'll, I'll check back in um, after a bit. But if that's the place where you also check out, I get you, but don't, okay? Don't. Because this part is not just information. It's how we understand why the heart of Isaiah's prophecy is all about Israel's coming Messiah, the one who is worthy of our worship, the Holy One of Israel. So stay with me while I give you some background on the Isaiah story. It starts with the Neo-Assyrian Empire and a ruler named Tiglath-Pileser. You, you have no reason to remember that name. Zero. But do you remember last week as we, we were in Isaiah chapter 6? And, and Isaiah chapter 6 begins with, In the year that King Uzziah died. Well, that year was right at the beginning of the rise of Tiglath-Pileser's Neo-Assyrian Empire. His goal in life was to take over the world one territory at a time. And so the options for any nation in his path were either to come over willingly to his reign and subject yourself to his empire or be completely mowed over. Your leaders killed, your people sent into exile. Those were your choices. <laughs> so now we can hear what a crisis moment that would have been for the people of Israel and why Isaiah was crying out to God in chapter 6 that year when King Uzziah died. He is our king, the one we trusted, who was faithful, who understood our national, national identity. He has died. And right about now, we feel very, very vulnerable as we look out on the world situation. Now keep in mind that Israel at this time was united, but not really. It, it, it has long been divided, had long been divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was called Israel. The southern kingdom of Israel was called Judah. But it was considered one united kingdom, united as in United Methodist or United States. You get what I'm saying? Like, not really. 
It's a delicate relationship, plenty of tension. But up until this latest threat, they'd managed the tension as well as they could. But fear does funny things to family systems. Let me get an amen on that one. So when Israel wanted to join forces with neighboring countries to stand against the tyranny of Tiglath-Pileser, this power-hungry ruler, the southern uh, kingdom of Judah did not agree, and that exposed the distrust that was already there between these two regions. And in the end, the northern kingdom of Israel decided to attack their own people, the southern kingdom of Judah, because, write this down, uh, the, the northern king wanted a king of their own choosing. The northern kingdom. That note is actually wrong. It's not Judah who wanted a king of their own choosing. The, the northern kingdom, so just take that off, Ted, because I totally screwed that up. The northern kingdom wanted a king of their own choosing. Oh, the desperate, controlish things we do, right? You know, all of it really just reverberations of the fall. Since Genesis 3, we keep doing some version of what the northern kingdom was doing to the southern kingdom. We keep fighting for control of something, of anything. And you see how it works against us? That whole king of the hill thing does not work. Unless you are a child on a playground. We can't quite grasp the truth that our place of greatest strength is not by taking the hill for ourselves, but by claiming the hill that the Messiah has already claimed for us. So back to Isaiah. In the middle of this national crisis, Isaiah shows up with a word from the Lord. And it's a hard word. He tells them, Israel's going to fall. And its people will be exiled. And into this anxious system, a kingdom turning on itself, an enemy threatening from the outside, and this, this um, rebellious spirit that will um, wreak havoc on its own people. Into that anxious system, Isaiah prophesies the options, and he speaks hope. He says, he says the northern kingdom will be obliterated before it's all over. The kings will disappoint them. But beyond that, beyond the horizon, there will come a king worth not only our submission and our loyalty, but our worship. So, Isaiah's word in chapter 11 speaks hope to fear, fearful people. It promises peace to conflicted people. It forecasts deliverance to exiled people. And it anticipates not just survival of a people, but the joy they will find in the pleasure of drawing water from the wells of their king's salvation. So with that backstory in mind, let's look at Isaiah chapter 11. The first three verses. He says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And then he tells us what the fruit is. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might. The Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. That's our Messiah. I remember the first time I ever heard anybody say that Jesus did not ask to be worshipped. That in fact he should not be worshipped. 
I was a pastor by then. I had, I had invited a theologian to come and speak to a small group at the church I was serving. I just had no idea what he was going to bring with him, and that's what he did. He drew it out on a, on a whiteboard even. He, he, um, all the reasons why Jesus ought not be worshipped. Sounds blasphemous even to say that out loud. But I remember him distinctly saying, Jesus never asked to be worshipped. And he didn't make that up. You can Google that phrase, and you will find plenty of people who say the same thing. It's a major argument of Islamic evangelists. Jesus never asked to be worshipped. And I hear that, and my response is, hey, Maybe he didn't have to ask. <laughs> when the wise men, the Magi, when, when, they, when they first saw the baby Jesus, they fell to their knees to worship. Nobody had to be asked. The, the Greek word used in that in that scene, it's proskuneo. It literally means to fall to your knees and put your face to the ground in reverence and, and awe. Profound reverence. The day Jesus walked on water, scared the heck out of a bunch of guys. When he stepped out of the water into that boat, nobody had to be asked, okay? <laughs> They just fell down, proskuneo, fell to their knees, faces to the ground, and worshipped. When the resurrected Jesus greeted the women at the tomb, Matthew 28, when he walked right up to them and said, Happy Easter, y'all! <laughs> no one had to be asked. They took hold of his feet and worshipped him, fell to their knees, face to the ground, holding his feet in, in reverence and awe. Luke 24 tells us that the resurrected Jesus was taken up into heaven at the ascension. And in that moment, nobody had to be asked. They worshipped him. They fell to their knees, proskuneo, face to the ground in reverence. And then they went with joy back to Jerusalem and stayed continually in the temple praising God. In all these cases, and in every other one in the New Testament, no one had to be asked. They just worshipped. And Jesus received their worship as a right response to His presence. He always receives our worship. Always. And will receive it in the end. That's why, from all the way from the prophetic words of Isaiah, it, the thread of worship runs all the way to Revelation as an unbroken thread. Revelation in the picture of the end of time. Jesus is worshipped as the Lamb of God. Then I looked, John wrote, and I saw the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number, I love this, was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. A lot of people. And they said with a loud voice, this is why we're trying to remember how to praise out loud. This is what it will be like in the end, and today this is your rehearsal. With a loud voice, they said, 
The lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches. Let your voice rise with theirs and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And when those beings began to worship, nobody else had to be asked. John said, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, come on people, blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Oh, praise Jesus. The four living creatures said, Amen. <laughs> and you know what they did? I'll give you one guess. Bam. They fell to the ground. Faces. Prostrate. And they worshipped. It's beautiful, isn't it? This call and response between the book of Revelation and the book of Isaiah. They keep having this conversation about the worship of our Messiah. It's beautiful. And, and it is because our Messiah is worthy to be praised. Go back to those first three verses in chapter, in chapter 11. Uh, after a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. This literally happened to me Friday. Friday afternoon, I'm sitting outside on, my, on a bench outside um, that I have repainted half a dozen times. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm working on this message. And I look down, and on that painted cedar uh, bench, there's, there's some growth that came out from it. Come on. And I saw it from the most unlikely places, from the thing that looks for all the world like dead. Life comes. You get it right that Jesus did not come to make bad people live. He came to make, sorry, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. You get that right. From the most unlikely of places. You. <laughs> New life. And it will come with this fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might. The Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He's described in the most lavish of terms. This Spirit of God that rests on him or abides with him. And there is wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. And the Hebrew word there means, uh, for, for fear, it means awe, which is to say that feeling of being overwhelmed by a greater glory or a greater reality. Even within the Trinity, there is this deep desire to please and for pleasure. This is awe in its finest form. And all of these traits listed here in Isaiah 11, 1 through 3, 
These are the traits that John references in the book of, uh, of Revelation. He, he will call this the sevenfold spirit of the Lord. The sevenfold spirit of the Lord possessed by the Messiah is the abiding or enduring or assured presence of God's spirit. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord or the awe of holy perfection that invites pleasure. That's what we call the sevenfold spirit of God and John who wrote Revelation, draws from this description of the, uh, of the Messiah when he begins to try to describe what this glory is that they are encountering, encountering in the Messiah. He says, Revelation 1-4, Grace and peace to you from the one who, who is, who always was, who is still to come from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, from Jesus Christ. Revelation 4-5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumbling of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. Revelation 5-6, then I saw the Lamb. And it looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes which represent the sevenfold Spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. Which means, listen to me friends, that God is sending out into every cell, every every inch, every bit of the earth, the abiding or enduring presence of His Spirit and His wisdom and His counsel and His understanding and His might and His knowledge and the experience of His holy perfection that invites awe and pleasure. As Moses said, it's not over some mountain that you have to go find it or, or across some sea that you've got to go look for it. He is sending it out to us. That's where our hope comes from. And John Oswalt says, those who can leap across that chasm of fear into trust will discover themselves floating in this sevenfold spirit. So I have a question for you. Does the sevenfold spirit of the Lord rest on you? Does the sevenfold spirit of the Lord rest on you? Because my sense is that as we place our gaze on that spirit, the sevenfold spirit of God, that his spirit comes to rest on us. So we worship Jesus, not because we had to be asked, but because he inspires it. We worship Jesus because the Messiah is our source of hope. Worship is how we get to revival. Personal and national and global. Look at verses 6 through 9. He says in that day, this is what happens. You know, remember the northern and the southern kingdom, the, the country within itself at war? He says, you will know when the Messiah has come in all his fullness into your presence because the, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will will lie down with the goat. 
the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put its hand into the viper's net. It reminds me of the story, which like it just happened last week. Is that what happened about the guy who got swallowed by the whale? And then he got, uh, y'all need to look this up. Got vomited back out. (sighs) Friends, what if that's a prophetic glimpse? God make that. It's not my hors d'oeuvre. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a glorious vision of the restoration of the whole world to its created design. Which means, hear this, that God is infusing the character of Jesus into every sell into every relationship. And, and God is literally making all things new. And to the extent that I don't have peace, I pray for Jesus to invade those places in my life that are confused and chaotic. When my northern kingdom and my southern kingdom are fighting against each other, come on, come on. I need to go looking for the Prince of Peace. We learned this last year, and I want to remind you of it. Here's a life hack. If you want peace, pray for wisdom. If you want peace, pray for wisdom. And I want you to look at the sevenfold spirit of God, what is listed there. It's, it's, there's, it is infused with wisdom, his wisdom, his counsel, his understanding, his knowledge. Pray for that to rest on you. That's the will of God for you. Do you want peace? Fall on your knees, face to the ground in reverence, and seek the sevenfold spirit of God. All right, look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time. I want you to underline that. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time. I meditated on that. It's beautiful to me. To reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt and Cush and Elam and Babylonia and Hamath and from the islands of the Mediterranean and from wherever you live too. And then verse 16 There will be a highway for that remnant. He will make a way where there seems to be no way. Just like he did for the people of Israel when they came up out of exile. I am so moved by that line in verse 11. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time. That's a truth here. It speaks into my own worship life. I'm so grateful to God for reaching out his hand a second time. In fact, a third time and a fourth time. And sometimes in worship, sometimes when I'm raising my hands, it's so he'll pull me up out of the waves again. 
whatever of me can survive and place me again. Pull me up, Lord, and place me in your abiding presence. There's an ancient Jewish commentary called the Midrash. It's, it's, it's the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament and, uh, or, or on, the, on the first five books. And, um, and, and in that writing, there's this moment being described between three young priests and the sevenfold spirit of God. They go up to a rooftop. I just love it. They go up to a rooftop and they, they toss the keys of the house of God. To, <laughs> they toss them back up to him. They take it back. I'm done with your people. And God reaches down, he grabs the keys. And then they cry out, how long, oh Lord, how long? They're lamenting their pain and the unanswered questions and the confusion and conflict among their people. And they, they know it's going to be thousands of years before the next coming of the Messiah. And they don't know if Israel can deal with the suffering. They just don't know if they can deal with it that long. And they, they hear the Lord say this to, him, to them. Behold, I give them a ray of hope which will pierce the night of their exile. I will give them one whom they will never see, but whose presence they will feel all the time. Who will never come, but he will always be right there at the door. Whom they will seek among the lepers and the gates of Rome and in the golden canopy of the supernal bird's nest, which is the sky. He will be found in their heart of hearts. I will give them him who is not visible, but who will sustain them. I will give them the Messiah. And we know the name of that Messiah. One guess. Jesus. Worship him. Friends, worship him, not because you owe God and not because anybody had to ask you to. Worship him because he has proven himself to you when he reached down and took you a second time and a third time and a fifth time. Worship him because he is the one being capable of carving out that path from your exile back to your spiritual home. You worship him who crossed over into enemy territory for the sake of your soul and, and who did that for you while you were still a wreck of a human being. Worship Him. Honor and glory, love to the one being with power enough not just to save you from your enemies, but to save you from your warring selves. It's your joy and your privilege to worship Him. So we're going to stand right now. Friends, the Messiah is a source of our joy. And chapter 12 ends this whole section of Isaiah from chapter 1 to chapter 11 where God call, Himself calls us to praise, promises us joy. This whole chapter, chapter 12. I want to ask you to hold in your head or in your heart the joys of God, the hope He gives you, the peace He has brought, the deliverance you can claim as I read this. And we're just going to begin to worship God together. And this is, this is praise, okay? 
This is the opportunity just to thank him. Thank him. In that day you will say, I will praise the Lord. Though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord Himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. So with joy, with joy, that's you, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day you will say, give praise to the Lord, proclaim His name, make known among the nations what He has done. Proclaim His name as exalted. Sing to the Lord. For He has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy. Joy, people. Come on, joy. Sing for joy. Sing for joy. People of Zion have seen the great and holy one of Israel, and he is among you. He is among you. So I want you to find that posture of praise. Maybe it is with your hands outstretched. This is a safe place. It may not be something you're used to, but here's your chance to try. Or maybe you want to find a place to worship like the Magi, to kneel. Fall on your knees, face to the ground in reverence, the awe of holy perfection that invites pleasure. And Tevin and Caitlin are going to lead us in a time of gratitude, a time of thankful praise. Chris will be here after worship to pray with anyone who wants, who needs prayer today. We want to make room for that. But right now, right now, this time is for the worship of our glorious Messiah, God. Receive our praise. Make the song your prayer. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.